The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre, bepositive.com.au, Gympie Foam and Rubber and Luscious Slicks. In this episode, I get to sit down to discuss the career of a man who's devoted almost half a century working as a road and bridge designer. Dennis Tennant has left his mark on a number of big projects in Queensland before retiring as Regional Director of Main Roads. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Dennis Tennant, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks, Mark, for having me today and uh, having a chat. Well, I want to talk about your career with Main Roads. You spent 49 years as a road designer. What was your job description? Well, it, it, it involved design and construction. It wasn't just designing. I started off in, actually in structures, building bridge, uh, designing bridges. That was the first part. And then I went, that was in Brisbane, and I then went into the field in different uh, centres. And then I was doing basically construction, roads and bridges. And uh, I had teams, of, I was a graduate engineer, so I had that that authority and uh, it was a great experience because we worked in the west we worked in Bar Calden, we worked at Winton, uh, Roma, uh, Rockhampton and Townsville so there were quite a few and Brisbane of course on a second visit and then finally in Gympie but it was an experience out in the west because I was a young young dude <laughs> and uh, and the, and the people there were really encouraging so I, I experienced the ability to learn to drive tractors and end loaders and a whole host of machinery as well as doing running the jobs and they were camp camp exercises where I would go out for a night and live in the camp and they, they had uh, fairly ex, uh, fairly good camps because they had chefs on board they just didn't defend for yourself I had been involved with where you had to cook for yourself but that wasn't really great <laughs> um, well they had really good chefs and they had guys who had sort of had a well good experience they weren't just cooks they were they had experience in chefs in on the coast and so you had some really good meals there and i always enjoyed the meals and even lunch time so i i had the privilege of going back to the mess hall and having lunch whereas the others had a pre-packed lunch off off outside so so it was a good good experience um, it's always good and i find it very grounding to do that country service i did it myself when i first went out my first station was at Longreach, then went out to mount isa what did you find about country service that's different to coming back to the city? Ah, oh, they were a lot friendlier. When we came back to Brisbane, I got married when I was in the West. And uh, when my wife, Janelle, we, we um, moved back to Brisbane. And it was interesting how I got back to Brisbane because uh, I was on the side of a road. We were crushing sandstone. And the guy who's involved with that was out there talking. He said, oh, where would you like to go next? And I said, anywhere but Brisbane. So where did I end up? Brisbane. <laughs> but but I found that they were, they were withdrawn. They'd been in Brisbane. The, the, the guys there had been sort of in Brisbane a lot. And I was just a newcomer. And they really sort of didn't get to know me at all. Whereas when I went to the West, they were all, you know, not over you, but they were more friendly. They invited you home and all that sort of stuff. That never happened. In fact, it was interesting because there was one guy who lived out near me and for, what, month or so I bust in to the city and then finally he lost his car and I was I was actually given a car that's after that after he lost his and uh, then he quickly tapped me on the shoulder where do you live where do you live I said I live there oh he said oh you can drop me home <laughs> so so that was the sort of environment you had and you didn't get invited to anywhere else or anything like that whereas in in the west we had we were a group, we were, we were all involved with moving into the country, but we got to know a lot of country people, you know, not just our own group, it was the country people, and they were really great. In fact, when we were in um, one centre, Bar Call, and they said, you're not a local until you've been there 20 years. <laughs> so obviously we weren't there 20 years, but we got to know locals and well accepted by them. I think they were being pretty generous when they say only 20 years. Yeah, they probably were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bar Calden was... Australia's tidiest town at one stage and a lot of people called it Barkledine and they <laughs> hated it. Yeah, well, Barkledine when I was there was a, it was a, it was a great little town because it was a tree of knowledge where the Union Party started and that was at the 
at the uh, railway station, and we lived just behind the railway station at the time. And uh, but it was a great little town, lots of hotels per pop of population, and uh, Friday night was always a night out at the hotel with uh, all the country club, with your wives, and that and we all joined there and have had great times. Now you say you were building bridges back in those days. Yep. Is that a boring thing? What's interesting about bridges? Uh, bridges is uh, you got to be, um, I say, you got to plan it, particularly if you're in the West. It doesn't just happen. The resources aren't available just by making a phone call to the local quarry. You may have to actually uh, import it or you may actually actually win it from the side of the hill. Uh, but the, the, the gravels, and quite often we would set up a... Um, a crushing machine and, and produce it ourselves. So you'd have to make concrete, you'd have to design the concrete because you didn't have a ready mix concrete there. And you have to go through all those basic procedures that and, and processes that aren't available or, 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 or you don't have to do on the coast. You could ring up ready mix on the coast and say, I want a certain strength concrete. When do you want it, sir? Such, such and such a time. Whereas out in the wish you had to pre-plan it all. That was the same with road building. You couldn't just get ring up and get bishop in the next morning or, or, or you know, a couple of days' time to seal your rows. But the bridges were really interesting. You had to get your formwork, you had to design your formwork to ensure they didn't collapse and, and things like that. And now you're accountable for that. Whereas down in, on the coast, you had more experienced people who could do that for you. There is that accountability with what you're doing and people's lives depend on what you're doing. You might not think about it, but they do. They do. Yeah, you don't want them to, things to collapse on people. You want the scaffolding to hold up under the loads that you're going to put under, and you want the, and there's a fair bit of weight in the concrete when you start pouring it when it's liquid before it holds itself up. Yeah, so there is an accountability. And workplace health and safety came in, uh, wasn't as strong in those days, but it came in as we, as you know, as I had my experience. Yes. How do you find that work health and safety from looking back over your career from when you first started to when you finished? That was always a challenge because they got more stringent and stringent as you went along. And it's more difficult in the, the urban areas, particularly if you're building roads, you've got to have a certain distance between traffic flowing and your work people. And you needed to have concrete barriers. Where in the West you didn't have that, you just had stop and go people and you stopped the traffic for a little while and you moved around. But yeah, it was, uh, I thought it was essential to have, uh, if you reflect, because it as you said, people's lives are important. If you look at some of the major structures built in the world, there, there were a lot of deaths, and they just seemed to be part of part of the plan. You think, hang on, you, you could do better than that. But they do say you can't legislate for common sense. Oh, absolutely not. If you've got common sense, you don't need it. But most some people just don't have common sense, and <laughs> they cut corners. They cut cut the cloth to suit the suit the situation and say, oh, no, we can get away with that, but maybe you can't. Is that the problem, that we need such heavy legislation with OH&S? Well, I wouldn't be one to make criticism of that. <laughs> well, just from what you've seen, you know, like... Well, I, I, what I've seen, I think, is probably essential in some places. Uh, other places, not essential at all, because the people core values uh, have... Uh, they value life and they don't want people injured, so, so they take all the precautions in the, as necessary. Because road workers really do suffer dangers on the road. Is it sort of undervalued and underestimated the amount of danger road workers are under? I think the average public doesn't appreciate the, the dangers the workers sitting there, particularly when they drive through a, place, uh, a work site. That's why now they mostly have concrete barriers to try and protect the worker. Uh, and the speed limits... Uh, are there to, to reduce the impact. They're still, they try to keep them as high as they can. Some people, I, I know that some construction workers keep the speed limit low out of hours, and that all that does is to reinforce the concept to the motorists that, oh, what are we slowing down for? There's no reason to slow down. So when they really need to slow down, they're built in their mind, oh, they just put the signs up at any time. So it's, it's really important to sort of be fraudulent and, and very... Uh, practical about your speed limits through the through the site because they do do that they do leave the the speed limits up there and also I noticed I was going down the Sunshine Coast the other day and brand new highway it's all been opened up but it's still at the roadwork uh, speed limit why do they do that do you tell me <laughs> I, I I would frown upon that uh, I think it's to become a, a 
cost-cutting exercise. It it's, takes a bit of effort and time to, to send workers out to change the sign. And whereas if you went to some automatic process where you can switch a button and change this you know, electronically, you would be able to do it fairly instantaneously. But it's, it is an effort, and I suspect that's part of the reason, but I, I, I really don't know. I'm, I know when I was working in the, in the field, I was quite diligent and uh, jumped on contractors who, who just left them up idly. Because it, it breeds that uh, in the motorists, what do I care? They never have it right. Because you've got a brand new road, it's all opened up, and I think just, there's a couple of bridges around here that it they stayed for a month or so after they were released at the roadwork speed limit. I suspect there's there's probably a bit of a fear on the contract that I I shouldn't judge, but I suspect they're about risk management, and if they keep it low, it's not quite the right. It's not quite 100% the road at this stage, and they're probably worried about litigation. If someone has an accident and they're doing the, the full bottle of, of speed, will, will they be called upon and uh, judged you know, that they, were, they didn't quite do the right thing? And it's, it's an interesting banter, and that's, that's the argument you, you get. And the, and the principal sometimes is in a difficult position because if he orders the contractor to do something, he's then liable. Whereas quite often the principal wants to let the contractor be liable for any litigation, so he leaves it to him. But there's a balance between that, between when you step in and you don't step in. Do we lose that balance, though, in the construction of roads? Could be. <laughs> now, you talked about speed, and there's one thing that I'll just give you a question without notice. There was... <laughs> The push for a speed limit of 130 kilometres an hour, I think it was Mark Scaife, the racing driver that was right behind it. What do you think about the current speed limits, being a road designer? Well, you've got to understand the roads are geometrically designed for speed. And they usually pick the design speed, what they want, and it's, it has a factor of safety in it. So if, if they have 100 kilometres an hour or 110, there's always a possibility someone will go faster than that. So they'll, they'll have a design, design speed of 140 or something like that. So there's a factor of safety there. So over 110, if you do 130, you're, probably, you're still probably safe. You're safe. As long as you've got your tyres right. And all that. There's a whole lot of factors that affect it and the skid resistance of the road. So, yeah, they, they, they went through a lot of drama just to try and bring the Bruce Highway in south of Sunshine Coast from 100 to 110. And the uh, traffic engineers and the they, they checked the geometry, they checked the fall of the cross fall of the road, they checked the the, the fall off. The, the, there's a channel in the middle of the road. They 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 judged judged all that, and they and the trees and what you can impact. So so they do a balancing of all things. So so you if you go through say Nambour, that's fairly that's that's a tight 110. It's not a it hasn't got a big factor of safety in it. So it's been designed with a small factor of safety. So if you do 130 through there, you're, you're probably pushing your, pushing your luck a little bit. It's interesting, though, that you talk about a whole lot of parameters that most people really wouldn't think of just to tack an extra 10 k's or 20 k's onto the speed limit. Absolutely, they don't think about it. They don't think about the, their tyres. They don't think about how much grip is on the road. They don't think about the water underneath for aquaplaning and the, and the, the tread depth. There's a whole pile of things in there that come to play. And also the surface of the road. What surface of the road is it? What sort of asphalt is it? There's different types of asphalt that allows the uh, open graded asphalt that allows the water to squeeze out through. It's like a honeycomb. And there's other dense graded asphalts that, that sort of ponds the water and lets the water flow. So, so and if your tyres aren't real well, you can lose it really quickly on if, you, if you're really speeding in certain conditions. And the chip seal, you know, there's, there's two types. There's the asphalt where they mix it up like a concrete and lay it out. And there's also the chip seal, we call it, where they, sp they spray the bitumen down and then spread the aggregate across and, and let it stick as it cools. And that gives you more water to go. But it's noisy and it doesn't last very long. And it's So, so on, the, on the urban roads, you just don't use that. You use asphalt. Out in the bush, though, I remember when I was heading out that way, there was a lot of dirt roads. Oh, and yes. now these days, most of them are bitumen. Yes. How have we come over the last 50 years? Are our roads out, out bush getting better? Oh, because you're extending the bitumen. And, and one of the issues with bitumen 
if you extend the bitumen, you still got to maintain it. It's like a, a painted house. You've got to repaint the house on a regular basis, otherwise it doesn't, doesn't last. And same with the bitumen seal road. So you, once you seal it, you've then got to come back at some stage and resurface it. And uh, that might mean an emulsion, something over the top of it, um, things like that. So, so you've got to have a maintenance program to do it. And, and I saw over the years with funding levels that uh, sometimes they didn't have enough money to resurface the roads and they start falling the vets. That's an interesting thing because of the, uh, as you say, the funding. How long is the average road expected to last? Ah, oh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, and it depends on the, on the, on the load limits. Um, but in between, in that period, you would have gone over and resurfaced if it's a chip seal several times. So that's important. It's about preventing the water getting into the pavement material. And also the trucks are the, are the issue. It's not the cars, it's the trucks. And if you overload a truck, it's exponential. So it could be, if it's twice the load overload, it's probably four to eight times the damage that it does than a normal loaded truck. So it's, it, it, it expands exponentially the damage. So that's why they're out there with scalies, uh measuring the white trucks. And of course, there's the volume loading with the cattle. That came another thing, but that was a risk the government decided to take and, and, and in the industry to have volume loading where they could load as many cattle on the truck as they like and there was no weight limit on it. How has that affected the roads then? Oh, well, some of those roads then you knew that where they operated, and they, they had a band where they could operate, uh, you knew you had a bit more maintenance process to do. Because people don't think about roads and maintenance. They just want to drive on them. It's one of those just a given that is in the background, but you never really think about. No, absolutely. I, when I have on a road, I just want to drive, and I, and I get quite annoyed if there's potholes and things like that. So I say, well, where are the, where are the maintenance people and things like that? So yeah, yeah, that's 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 not unfair. <laughs> is that um, with you as a designer, as opposed to in one camp, the main the maintenance people are in the other? Well, the, the maintenance people know what's what's required of them because they're out there patching the roads there, and then there's these. Another level is sort of maintaining the the regularity of resurfacing it, so it all fits together like a glove. You know, you you can't have one without the other, and so the designers design it for their their lifespan, which is usually twenty years, and uh, and of course there's an expectation on what the predicted traffic is. So if it increases, you may have to resurface it. You may have to put more gravel on it in a shorter period of time. Now I was talking to someone about bridges over in the US oh, and yeah. a lot of them are starting to suffer decay. Yes. How dangerous are these bridges, not just here but in the States, how long do they last before they do tend to collapse because they would only have a limited lifespan? Yeah, we usually design a bridge for 50 to 100 years. Which really isn't very long when you when you think about it. Not really, no. And we've replaced bridges. Uh, it depends on how well you make your concrete. And, uh, and regular inspections. So, so there's a whole another gamut of things. You design it, you've got a good, good quality of gravels and, and, and making good concrete. And then that, that then determines the life. So like if you're around a saltwater environment, you know, there, was, there was a period of time we had a, the same strength concrete as we did in the West, but the salt water gets into it. So they found that wasn't lasting. So they had to have redesigned the, the concrete mixes to stop the water and the salt getting in and destroying the, the uh, steel. So how porous is this concrete? You're talking about the salt water getting into it. How porous is it? Depends on what you make. It depends on the strength. The stronger the concrete, the, the less permeability is. So you can make it uh, less permeable by design. And it's, it's a cost factor. And of course, they add, add mixtures into it now, like fly ash and things like that. It helps the permeability. You started as an engineer. You got a scholarship way back in the younger days. Tell us about getting the scholarship. How important was that for you? Well, I came from a family that didn't have a lot of money, if I might say that. And um, it helped put me through university. Always wanted to build something. I think I started out, I thought I might like to be an architect because my father was in the building industry. And... uh, but when it got offered, and I saw the ability to build roads and bridges, and that the structures was the, the key point. So I went for it, and I was successful. And it was a time when the uh, University of Technology was starting up down the Botanical Garden. So it was his first infant. So there was a few government scholarships handed out at that time. 
So I was successful in getting one of those. I, I, I had good grades in grade 12, so I had good, good marks to, to get me through. It wasn't just given out, it was I had to earn it. And that, so that was, that was an ability to sort of get university qualification, because they changed it to a university after a while. It was just a Institute of Technology, I think it's the, the correct name was at the time, and then by the time I finished it was a university. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was financially a great benefit. And I was bonded for a while, so I was actually, so I had to do a bit of Western tour, but you could have bought out the bond. It wasn't much, it really, really a token thing, and some people did. You were happy to go, though, out West. Why didn't you want to stay in Brisbane if you studied here? I suppose I wasn't afraid to go out west and I didn't have any great desire to stay in Brisbane and the, and the better work was outside of Brisbane and, uh, and in those days uh, in the main roads is you did some of that western area and it gave you a, a better chance of promotion so they looked at your, your, your experience so, so uh, unless you're in a round metropolitan where they're building a few freeways and a lot of people didn't be, couldn't get onto those you went west so you learned some basic stuff and I think I learned a lot more basic stuff <coughs> and ability to talk to people and get things done and once I got that I then came down to around this area and this is where they were building all the uh, motorways at the time Sunshine Motorway and those and this this is a great area the Gimpy office was involved all on Sunshine Coast and it was a great opportunity to do contract work. It was a great opportunity involved with big bridges, you know, bridges across the Maroochee River, things like that. So, and designing interchanges and all those sorts of things. So it was a great opportunity to sort of do that. Whereas if you're in Brisbane, and I did spend some time ultimately in Brisbane, and fortunately that was work really on the Sunshine Coast. The office was in Brisbane, but the work was on Sunshine Coast. So I got involved with that sort of thing as well. The lifestyle is so much different. And um, my wife was a country girl, and uh, she liked the country. And uh, so we moved. We had a son down in Brisbane, had, had a daughter too. And, and uh, when, when we moved, um, and uh, she didn't like the lifestyle much. You know, it was pretty hectic, and you, you lived in a rush all the time. So we moved back into, um, back to the West <coughs> for a while. And... Um, we, we enjoyed it. So we went to Roma and then we came ultimately to Gympie and we love Gympie. And we've stayed here since we've been here. You did 49 years. You were bonded for a short time. Yeah. Why did you stay? I liked the work. And I looked at the alternatives and there were consultant engineers out there. And I was tempted a couple of times to join them, but I thought, no, that's not my lifestyle either. So... I stayed with Main Roads. I, I enjoyed it. The work pay was good. It was relative and um, wasn't, wasn't going to make me a millionaire or anything like that, particularly <laughs> working for government. But it was good and we enjoyed the company and, um, yeah, we just it was one of those things I just stayed. It's an interesting thing, though, designing bridges. You talked about the fact that you did it right from the start. What was the thing when you were a young fella? What did you want to be? A fireman? Anything like that? Why bridges? How did the design side of things come into fruition? Oh, I think I wanted to um, build things. Uh, as I said, my father was a builder, and I, I've always thought of building high sky, skyscrapers and things like that. So bridges was the next next thing when I when I was offered the scholarship. I thought, yeah, I can live with that. Yeah, you build things like gateway. Not that I got on the gateway bridge, but you build things like gateway bridges and um, there's bigger viaducts in. Europe and things like that and a few of my colleagues ended up in Europe on those things but I I was pretty much a homeboy on surfing and things like that so because I hear that you were quite the um, surfer back in your day and you designed <laughs> your first surfboard and built it tell us about that oh that's an interesting story <laughs> actually um, yeah I, uh, I actually shaped the board I, my, as I said my father was always helpful and uh, we shaped the board under their house. And of course, it was getting in winter. And I, before that, I'd spent a fair bit of time in the uh, surfboard shops watching how they did. So we actually uh, fiberglassed it in uh, my mother's living room. And uh, it was my father's birthday. It was around August, I remember that, because the resin smell got into his, his birthday cake. 
and yeah, <laughs> uh, so it wasn't wasn't edible at all. But yeah, we we actually uh, fiberglassed it in the living room, in the lounge room, and uh, yeah, they, they were very amenable to me doing that. <laughs> it must have been great support. But so surfing, you were a pretty keen surfer back in the day. Yeah, well, yeah, I also had a lecturer at the university that uh, he was Mad King uh, surfboard rider too, and I had a few friends who enjoyed it. So I used to go out with them every weekend. We'd go down the coast and camp, stay down there, sleep on the beach or or in the back of the cars and uh, if it was raining. But generally on the beach, you wouldn't do that now, but that's what we did, look, chased up and down the, the, the coast for the surf, yeah, so... Yeah, so I designed my first board, yeah, big Malibu board, which is quite big compared with the boards today. Did you miss it when you went out to um, country areas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Particularly even when I went to Rockhampton, I'd, we'd drive down to Yapoon and those places and think, there's no surf here. And all the guys <laughs> would have their boards on and think, there's no surf here. <laughs> yeah, so it was one of those things you miss, but you put aside. Because I know some of the best weather forecasters are surfers up in Mackay because there'll be nothing and then all of a sudden boards will be on top of cars before a cyclone swell comes mm-hmm. did you ever follow that uh no i followed the cyclones and the big swells down the coast and yeah i, I enjoyed it we enjoyed the banter with our friends and uh, and that's what it was all about because even that's changed there's a lot more hostilities in the waves chasing waves and who owns an area and that sort of thing what was it like back in the, the those halcyon days chasing waves on the sunshine coast there was a lot less surface, so you had a lot more space. Yeah, so uh, occasionally you get a bit of hostility if you if you jumped in front of someone. But basically, we we behaved and um, didn't jump in front of someone who was already on a wave, and we tried to be that polite. So, so yeah, it was it was it was good. I there's a lot more surfers out there now, and you sort of be a challenge to sort of can I get a space here? But there's some really good surfers around. So, did you take the chance to get back to the coast very often? No, we, I, I ended up doing other things. So, so when we were in Rockhampton, we went water skiing. And we built our own water skis as, we, as well. We had, uh, had skis and uh, we then built tunnel skis and a few things like that. So, so, so we were always doing something that was a little bit different. Help, help my friend build a, a motorboat, a speedboat, so that we could uh, ski. So wow, tell us about that. What happened? <coughs> Oh, well, he, he was always a, a bit of a handyman, so he was keen to um, uh, build a boat, a speedboat. So he basically was out of plywood, and we fiberglassed it. So we fiberglassed it, and uh, it was called Hush. I remember that. And he and his family made keen skiers, so being in Rockhampton, five minutes or ten minutes, you could have the boat in the water, because we lived in town into the river and you'd be off skiing so in daylight saving we loved daylight saving at the time because you had hours after work saturday and sunday we skied all day on our well we bought skis as well but we also made them yeah so that was always a challenge is that half the fun when you say you made your own board and made your own skis is that half the fun ah it's a bit of a challenge (laughs) well i I always like making things and uh some people just say you didn't make that so so we, we spent a lot of time to make sure they look professional and things like that. It's not hard. You know, a professional is he's learnt, learnt the skills, and we, we, we would learn the skills to make them. When you're wandering around and you're skiing, you're um, surfing, you're quite the athlete back in the day. You're also a competent squash player, I believe. Oh, no, I wouldn't say I was a, a major uh, champion in that, but I enjoyed the squash. And, of course, they're quite different these days. The rackets are a lot smaller there, or then than what they are now. And, uh, yeah, I, we had a good time because I, I got introduced from, from a, uh, a school college a colleague and he, um, he was mad keen on squash. In fact, he owned squash courts at one stage. <coughs> and... Uh, he was the uh, one who sort of challenges. Yeah, it was always a different because we played tennis as well in the west, and uh, the squash was always good on the on the coastal towns where they had courts. Because that's one of the things I find out west. There's a lot of camaraderie and community on the sporting field. They all get together and play together essentially. Yeah, tennis tennis is quite uh, favoured out there. Well, look at Pat Cash came from Mount Isa. There you go. <laughs> and uh, golf was the other one. Not Greg the, Norman, Mount Isa. There you go. You can name them all, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. 
Well, you're always looking for something to do. So you didn't have surf and you didn't have things like that. But you did other things. You went gem hunting, things like that. So, so Ah, gem hunting. Did you ever find anything really valuable? Uh, I wouldn't say valuable, but they little little bits of opal. And we went to the opal fields and we also found um, the other gemstones uh, around um, emerald. So yeah, it was, it was, but it was a, an outing with friends and go you know, digging. So, and we also went bottle hunting too in the old, the old um, dumps. Okay, and, and found bottles of different t- shapes of bottles and things like that. So, so you did different things. So, and we learned to fly when we were on Campton. So we did flying in Rockhampton. What drew you into flying in the first place? Being in Rockhampton, I was close to the airport. And there was a friend who introduced me to flying. Like another friend, another school colleague. Oh, come out. And I got hooked on it. So it was great flying in a little Victor, Victor uh, aeroplane that did aerobatics. So uh, the instructor quite often coming back, he said, let's do a little bit. So we do some aerobatics, barrel rolls, loops and things like that. You got a passion for aerobatics. Yeah, yeah. I got a passion for that. And uh, also just got a passion for flying because it was, it was great. And uh, I basically gave it up uh, when I got married. My wife didn't like flying, and it was very expensive. And um, so I took a middle road. So I kept the license for a while, but to be uh, proficient, you've got to do it quite regularly. So I just let it ride. Talk about what happens when you are flying aerobatics, because that is just something most people don't get to experience, let alone flying. Well, you've got to have a good stomach. That's the first thing. And you've got to have a good head because <laughs> as you're rolling around, things are spinning on you. So, yeah, it's just a, one of those thrills. I, I think people experience some of the, the thrills with the uh, big shows these days and some of those uh, show rides. You know, they spin around and, and twirl. So, so that's probably why I, with my youngest, I was always on, volunteered to be on the rides with him as a younger. <laughs> my wife wouldn't go on in the fence. How do you go through when you are getting ready for an aerobatic manoeuvre? Do you prep for it? Is there something that you pre-rehearse? How does it all come together? It just sort of happens. Where you make sure you're in the right airspace and you make sure you're at the right height and then you just move into it. It's really, it sounds really simple, but it is, yeah. I just admire the ones who do the, uh, you know, the, the roulette guys and the, the ones who do formation flying, you know, keeping wingspans, and that, that was always a discipline to try and keep your, your, yourself in the exact same level and direction and things like that. That was always a challenge for me to, to do that. The instructor would say, no, no, you're, you're losing a bit or you're doing that. But that was, it was great fun. Did you ever think about a career in aviation to go and pursue it further? No. No. I, I, I saw it as a, maybe a possibility to, um, to fly around on jobs to job sites and um, things like that. You know, have your own aeroplane and do that. That was that was sort of, yeah, I might do that. But then I realised, no, that was fairly expensive. And I had a wife who didn't like flying, so why would I bother <laughs> <laughs> investing in something like that? Because uh, in the West, it was quite common for people in properties to have planes and uh, instead of driving hundreds of kilometres, they just fly to the to the, where they want to go, their destination, and that was it. So, so that, was a, that was a bit of a thought, but no, I, I gave, dismissed that one fairly quickly. With your job in main roads, how often are you looking to expand your design parameters? Yeah, but quite often, most of it was just pretty basic principles that you just followed. And there wasn't, uh, unless you got onto the motorways, and that's when you could have a, a bit of a, um, a brainstorm to get quite different geometries and particularly interchanges. Uh, but, but the basic road was pretty, pretty simple to design and bridges well you had your hydraulics you had to do and you had to get the bridge span correct to make sure it didn't get washed away and you had all those sorts of things but that was pretty basic what's the biggest challenge that you've had in your design career that's an interesting question i don't think i was tested beyond my ability what gave you the biggest thrill oh just uh getting it out of the door on time <laughs> and something that that uh, matched up with uh, the environment. And, and those those uh, ones are really around the coast where, where you're sort of far more um, aesthetic. You know, in the in the west it's basically, give me a bitumen road and I'm, I'm happy. Around the coast you need to sort of fit in with the environment, you need to fit with the uh, uh, the aesthetics of the place. You know, and, and, and on, the, 
on the uh, coast, you had to make uh, wildlife corridors. You know, we built things uh, for a bridge, particularly for wildlife, to go from one side of the road, the highway, to the other side. Do they actually use those things? You see them on some of the big roadworks, the the spanned across... The highway. Yep. Do the animals actually use them? Yeah, they, they, they put cameras up and they do check them. They, they are used. Yeah, so that, that's, that, that was a reassuring thing about it, yeah. What sort of a thrill is it to see them being used for that sort of thing, the animals actually getting up and using oh. what you've put together? Well, it's, it's just you're satisfied that you spent the money well and uh, you've provided a con- continuation of the uh, corridor for the animals. So rather than just putting a highway through, cutting it off, you provided a corridor so they could continue to uh, move, move across the new highway. Sometimes the road has to, uh, to move for animals. Have you had much, like, environmental problems? Have you had much of that? Yeah, we've moved uh, slightly to, to accommodate rare frogs. Uh, we've done rehabilitation of, of areas to for to suit frogs and wildlife. Uh, we've moved bridges slightly to do that sort of thing. Uh, we've done research to ensure that what we're doing, why are they say the frogs in this, this corner is uh, dying out and, it's like, <clears throat> and it wasn't just road building, it was other th- environments. So, so we invested in those sorts of things. But yeah, yeah, we, we've, we do a lot more now than what we ever did before. Before it was just basically bulldoze through <laughs> and we do, well it, it wasn't the the focus of it all but uh when i left main roads was at the forefront of ensuring the uh, environment was protected uh we had a we had a job to do we had to build a road but we had environmental scientists who, who were there guiding us and the young ones sort of said no you can't build a road and the more wise ones said well you work for a road authority how can they build a road what have you got to put in place to ensure that this road can be built or widened. Quite often it's just a widening job through through the area. And so they lay down the parameters and, and you'd build it to those parameters. Um, so yeah, I, I think that a lot of wisdom came out of that. And same with dealing with land acquisitions. You know, we had people who were involved with land and and uh, and, and preserved areas. You know, we, we end up with preserving areas for corridors, for wildlife and things like that. Do you get much grief from people when you are resuming land? Oh, yes. Oh, you could imagine someone wants to take your part of your property and particularly your house. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of empathy for those people. But sometimes someone might uh, welcome you with open arms because they're on an area that they know is very busy. And quite often a lot of the resumptions are based on widening an existing road. And... Uh, and they've lived on this busy road and they say, yeah, it's time to get out. And main roads quite often give them the avenue to get out. They, they provide the correct funding and uh, they have an opportunity. Others who don't want to shift, well, that, that, that's a problem. And as I said, I have a lot of empathy for those people. But you try to find a, a solution for them as well. Because when you do put roads through, there's always winners and losers. No question about that. No question about that. And it's worse when you try to put a, a new corridor through. That's the worst one because there's, there's no foresight of a road in, the, in your local area. Then suddenly someone says, ah, this would make a great corridor for whatever, rail or, or, um, or road. And um, so that, that's, that's the, the, the big problem. The ones who, who were widening an existing road, they're living in that, that environment already. As I said, some of them take it as an opportunity to move, others dig their toes in. But at the end of the day, they the big winners will be the motorists, and the, you'll get an odd loser in the in the property. But the new corridors, they're, they're the challenge. Because there was a fair bit of work that you did, uh, I believe, in the design of the Gimpy Bypass, which is now underway. Yeah. Talk about the winners and losers for that. There was a lot of community consultation in the early days to. To, to get the line and the, the line at the time uh, was refined to reflect the needs of the community and the environment to have a balance between that so it missed houses it tried to go up property lines and things like that so so through a consultation process there was a there's a quite a large community uh, they drove that process to ensure that you just didn't knock wholesale willy-nilly things down 
and you, you moved as close as you can to uh, natural forests, state forests, and, and try to preserve the properties. So, so the alignment moved and uh, based on the community input. Is that a frustration, though, as a designer, when you go, wow, that's the way to do it, and then you have to move either for community, for frogs, for whatever? Is that frustrating as a designer? I think that's just part of the game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think if you had the open slather, yeah, it's probably just frustrating, but but basically the game is you've got to blend it in. You've got to meet the expectations of the community. Otherwise, you you just won't build it. So, so I think that's the the attitude you need to have uh, when you're designing and building projects like that, particularly particularly new arterial roads, particularly the the uh, ones on a new alignment. That Gympie bypass is also creating uh, a little bit of controversy at the moment with the Gympie pyramid. Yes. <laughs> What's your take on that? Well. That's an interesting question, and I shouldn't be very careful what I say here. But if you're tired, you can say what you like. I can. (laughs) (laughs) But in in the early days, there was a lot of expense went to uh, investigating the pyramids, uh, and uh, through the community and through the indigenous community, and the reports done. And when I left there, there was they basically, I believe they resolved that they had no significance. And, uh, but someone's dug it up and they think there is so they're going through a process now which they're quite entitled to uh, and uh, it will be interesting to see what happens with it What do you think should happen and will happen? Ah, I can't answer that <laughs> I can't answer that one That's a, uh, and I'm not sure where it, it lands now but I, I suspect it's with some Commonwealth environmental decision to be made Because the Traveston Dam Yep was stopped due to environmental concerns in the long term. Mm -hmm. Say this pyramid, could it be saved due to environmental concerns? It's interesting because it's stopping the job now, I understand. And and I'm not involved with the job at all. Uh, I just hear a little bit on the grapevine and I haven't spoken to specifically the people who may be able to give me a better answer. Uh, But yeah, uh, that area is a no-go zone at the moment and... uh, they're trying to work around it, so it's delaying the contractor. So they've got to come to a resolution of what they can and can't do on that site. But as you say, for, say, environmental things, it can have to sometimes be slightly realigned. Could that be what happens in this case? Uh, I'm not fa- familiar with the final design. but yeah. If you were designing? Uh, yeah, but uh, they designed it on the basis that uh, the road now aligns, takes it out. And they were leaving some parts... And, and trying to manage manage through it. But yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I can't give you an answer on that one. Why do you think there's such interest in that Gympie Pyramid? You've obviously been fairly hands-on with it in the design process. Oh, I think someone thinks it's got significance and they're out to sort of prove the point. Yet they've found nothing. Well, the, the original reports, uh, I believe, uh, dealt with it quite extensively and uh, professionally and engaged with all the right groups to see it had any significance and uh, as I said earlier if it did have significance they would have worked around it but the report said no it hasn't so they've they've taken that as gospel but someone someone there has decided no there's something in that so unfortunately it's the 11th hour and it'll make some watch this space yeah that's what I would do is that um going to cost money for the fact that it's holding up the job Oh, of course it will. The contractor uh, could have a legitimate claim if he, uh, on a contractual basis, it was all open, open for him to sort of get into it, and then suddenly he stopped. So the principals obviously stopped him, and uh, under a contract, he would, if he's stopped by the principal, he would have a legitimate claim if he's delayed. So, and that might be only time, a time claim, or it could be dollar claim if he had to do other, more expensive processes to keep the job flowing. Um, so yeah. How important is it to keep an eye on budgets as a road designer? How hard is it for you and what sort of pressures are you under to keep it to cost? Ah, enormous pressures. Uh, Particularly big projects uh, because you're under the political look as well Uh, because the politicians go out and say, we're going to build this for a certain amount of dollars 
and they don't like you blowing the dollars. They like you to come out at the end and say, this project came under cost. So there's enormous pressure <coughs> to bring it under cost. And that, that's been successful. Wet weather is, is, a, is, is a big factor in all this. If you have really good weather and you can get with your machinery in there and get going without wet weather, you'll bring the project under cost under time within time if you're a lot of wet weather you'll you'll struggle to get the project uh, within the cost of that and then there's other factors too it depends on how well the design's done is there uh, any uns, um, unforeseen subgrade material that that you haven't taken account of so if you've done your investigations well all that should be there so so yeah I, I think it's quite easy to well, I say quite easy. There's a challenge, and you've got to monitor it. You can't just—it's like anything. You can, you can do something, and if you don't keep a handle on the costs, you can blow it. It's just interesting when you say about um, all the preparation that goes on before even a, a spade is turned. You don't really think about that. How much work goes in, say, using the Gimpy bypass? How much work goes on in the background before a spade is turned in construction? Regardless of whether it's Gippy Bypass or not, there'd be an immense amount of preparation work in terms of the design. And then the contractor, he would need to satisfy himself that all the, all the um, factors are there that he, he has to take account of. And he may do some further investigation himself. And uh, if all that's done well, and there's usually a team there, there's a, there's a crew out on the site, but there's a team back in the, the office there monitoring it and ensuring that it's all carried out. So there's an immense amount of work, and there's an immense amount of work in terms of monitoring the costs, the daily costs, because machineries don't, don't come cheaply these days. They're big machines. So someone would be monitoring that cost and making sure that they're moving the earth as they need to move. They're bringing the materials in, and there's no one. You know, people quite often rubbish the um, parole construction work. Oh, there's someone standing on a shovel and things <laughs> like that. But sometimes that's necessary to monitor things. Uh, sometimes there is the you sort of say, yeah, they are standing around too often, but but there is a lot of supervision that goes in, a lot of what I call daily costing. People will be sort of checking the costs out on a daily basis. In fact, hourly basis, some of the big stuff. You know, the um, some of the early uh, Croikara projects, they had major earth-moving equipment, and they have big dollars, so they're not going to let them sit around for too long. They're going to make sure they're moving earth. And, this, and, and the contractor, he makes his money by ensuring that everything's moving quickly and efficiently. Who's under most pressure then when these big contractors are happening? You say that the big machinery has to be working. You're actually trying to keep a lid on the cost. You've got the politicians on one side. Who's under most pressure? Oh, I think there's a bit of pressure on everyone. But the contractor, obviously, because it's his money, he, he's, he's bid on it. And he's going to ensure, he'll be out to ensure that his um, shareholders have a return of profit in the company. And the, the project manager will have be under immense pressure to ensure that it runs smoothly so he could deliver the project on time and under budget. And um, from his point of view, he'll, he'll, he'll put a, a value into the principal and the principal will be paying what's owed under the contract. But if he can, if he can deliver the uh, a cost of an item cheaper than what he put his bid in, he's making a profit. And that's where he wants to make his profit. So, so he's under an immense pressure as a project manager to ensure everything's running quickly. Is it tough dealing with politicians? <laughs> now, that's an open-ended question. If everything goes well, not a problem. Because they, they change over time, you know, like you, you were there for 49 years and it would have been more than one government you had to deal with. Oh, yeah, all the governments have different slightly different perspectives but basically they they want the jobs done under cost done in time so that they can show that uh, their government's efficient and effective yeah are we showing enough foresight with the design of these major constructions and roadways throughout the southeast of the state i think so should they be thinking ahead with um, some of these roads to allow for the expansion well it's about spending your money at the right time so, so you make provision within the corridor and the superstructures that bridges over that uh, you can squeeze it through. So they'll, they'll have provision that you probably put eight lanes in there ultimately. So if, you, if you're smart in your design, they'll have that provision within the corridor and within some of the structures you build.
some of the early days, the uh, overhead bridges over the road weren't built to the stage where you could just lengthen them and things like that. So the Gympie Bypass will certainly have a provision to to be be wider, but you wouldn't build it now because it's about uh, the timing of your expenditure. It's like, I suppose, a house. You don't paint it two years after. You, you just painted it. You paint it when it's needed to be painted, but not 10 years late, too late. You've got to paint it at the right time. So so it's about putting the you know, road, it's about building what you need now and then expanding it later. Because if you spend all your money in one location, someone else misses out. So you're trying to expand the road network, so you're going to put it in, in a logical sequence. So you wouldn't put it in straight away. Is there political pressure on you guys because of one particular electorate needs to get someone back and return to power? Do you feel that pressure? Oh, that, that was certainly uh, happened over the years, yeah. Oh, I can't give much. <laughs> <laughs> you can feel it. You can feel that. You'll you just see where, it, where it's happening. But there was a, there was a time of uh, the bicentennial money. There was two cents a litre Commonwealth put on it. That was oh, a long time back. But you saw a big improvement in the road systems during that time. Should we be still taxing petrol to increase and step up and and promote road building and and construction? Well, they still tax petrol. Should we be doing more? Well, what they did then was they said two cents of all the tax will go to road building, whereas now it's just a general revenue and uh, and then it... um, they distribute it out from that and decide, well, we'll spend this much on, on welfare, we'll spend this much on roads and we'll, on something else. Whereas before, there was, as I said, that particular time, they said, we're going to put two cents on fuel and that'll all go to roads. And you saw a big improvement. Um, main roads used to, their money used to, registration used to go to consolidated revenue. <coughs> no, it didn't go into consolidated revenue. It went into a trust fund, main roads, and they controlled it. Whereas now it goes into consolidated revenue. And when they made that move, they did say that the money that comes from registration would go into roads. So I don't know the budget conf- configuration right now, but, but that's what they made the, the promise. Why did you step down when you did? Did you try and make the 50 years? Was it something that you went, mm, half a century? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I suppose there's a whole gamut of things, but basically I was on contract and my contract was coming up and my wife was keen to sort of say, no, you put too many years in there. So 50 doesn't mean a lot more. That was probably a goal, but yeah, some people have got there, but I don't think it was a, a goal that you really needed to do. Now, I also believe that as part of your training, you were a powder monkey. <laughs> what happened? How did that all come together? Ah, uh, that was an interesting... Oh, we were doing blasting uh, on uh, the Rang Bypass <coughs> down the Gold Coast. And uh, there was uh, an opportunity to learn how to do blasting. I was the engineer on the project. And so I put my hand up and uh, I learned how to... I was to show engineers how things happen, but I, because I was doing this particular job, I uh, went a bit further and I ended up controlling some of the, these, the uh, blasting. So yeah, you had to design the, the pattern and organise the drilling and you had to organise the uh, the uh, explosives that went into it and the firing pattern. And so, yeah, I, I uh, it was just one of those things I would want to do, I wanted to do. So I had the opportunity. Not too many people had the opportunity. And I got a shot fire's licence out of it, which I kept current for a number of years. And then I said, no, nah, I don't need to keep this going. <laughs> well, I wasn't practising and you really need those things you need to practise. What was the feeling like, though, when you pressed the button and it went boom? Oh, exciting. Exciting, no question about that. Um, the the biggest problem is if uh, and you just said, "Well, it worked." Uh, that was the, the the biggest thrill is that uh, it fractured where it wanted to fracture. You got you didn't have uh, uh, rocks flying everywhere because you matted it. Um, but sometimes if you put too much in, the match would fly everywhere, and you'd have and you had traffic. You had to stop traffic. You're in a built-up area. And uh, so you had to have vibrations, you had to measure the vibrations. So, so it was, it was a, a thrill that it, it was successful, that your, your pattern worked. You got the rock fragment the right size for moving. Yeah, so it was a good thrill. Is it something that most road designers should have to do, learn the, the get on the tools rather than just designing? 
Yeah, well, it could be. Um, I, that was my, that was me. I just enjoy doing that sort of stuff. Uh, not everyone, no, with like the, the blasting would bother. They just because you had the prop, the powder monkeys there, and they did most of it. I, I only did part of it. Um, so so I just enjoy doing that. I enjoyed hopping on dozers and pushing on gravel in the west uh, for, for for making roads. I just enjoy that. I enjoyed hands-on experience. I must probably still do it. Are most designers like that, or is it just you? Some people just stay in design full stop and don't go out at all. I I prefer to be building. Design was uh, a strength that I enjoyed, and, and I probably spent more time in that as um, towards before I retired because I was running construction and a, an office that had construction arms and and also. Um, contract arms and also design arms so so I got involved with all of them but it was because uh, I went through the planning I, I could talk to design officers and, and with some authority because I knew what what was kosher and same with contracts I because I ran contracts I knew what you could get away with and what how you could bargain with contractors and negotiate and then and I knew the the, the um, all the technology uh, with materials and so I could advise in terms of that that looks nonsense or that's okay. When you're actually uh, doing these things, do you have a favourite sort of roadway then or bridge that you've you've worked on over the time? No, not necessarily. I just like them all. <laughs> and my grand, grand my granddaughter say, "Did you build that one?" Yeah, I did actually. <laughs> so yeah, I be involved with lots of me it's just one of those things you do you achieve it there must be a specific area that you've gone wow that's really come together the way the way you wanted it i suppose um part of it was around the narang bypass when we put the bridge across the narang river and uh the floodways there that was that was interesting it all came together well what was the challenge <clears throat> oh the challenge was building across a, the narang river and a floodway and you had big uh, res, uh, hotels and that block concrete that you had to be careful when you were blasting and you're building through that and the vibrations and that was interesting because that was one of the bridges um, the Rang River is I they uh, to get down to the footings the, the rock footings they put these big cylinders down steel cylinders about a meter these were about a meter diameter and uh, you go down in those and you push them into the rock you drive them into the rock with the hammers, big, big hammers, and then uh, you go down inside them and you muck out, dig out the rock, and, and you take it up in the buckets, and uh, until you get down to the solid rock. So one of the challenges, um, that that's the challenge, and uh, one of the jobs was to go down and inspect: Are you far enough into the rock? Have you put this cylinder into the rock far enough? So that was an interesting job. You put your raincoats on and you put your earmuffs on and you go down in the buckets and get lowered down below the water level and the pumps are pumping the water out and uh, see if you've sealed it off. It was That was a challenge. You talk about your dad a fair bit as well. How important an influence was he on your life? Yeah, well, we got on really well. Um, he was a he was a sort of a, a quieter person, I suppose, and, um, and uh, gave good counsel. And he was always there, he, you know, I was in the Scouts and he was always there supporting us in the Scouts and uh, as I said he helped me build a surfboard. He, j he was just always around and uh, oh, he used to make uh, the uh, bikes. Uh, they talk about the, the kids have the bikes without the pedals now, the uh, balance bikes. He used to make those for us and uh, and he uh, used to help us with our push bikes because he used to race them until his mother told him he wasn't allowed to race anymore um, because he's uh, one of his friends uh, had a heart attack or something when he was racing when they were young and so she, he banned she was banned and uh, yeah, he, he just had lots of little skills he he'd done a few things before he was a builder worked in chain factories and and we used to make um, forged steel and make a, a knife or something and a few little things like that but he was always there always always um, you need a dad he was there because family appears also to be pretty important to you. Oh, yeah. I used to adjust my, um, my work because I, we lived in a small town. I could walk to work early in the mornings. 
and work for a couple of hours, then come home for breakfast and then <clears throat> see all the kids and all that and then sometimes drop them to back to work or drop them to school and then I'd come home for tea and then I might gravitate into the den or do something to do a bit more work. But, but basically I tried to be around them and, uh, and uh, wouldn't take promotions at times or offers to go further, go back out west when they were sort of in their teenager areas. I wanted them to finish college here and have an opportunity to go to a, do something here because it was never guaranteed that you'd get back out in time for them. And I didn't want them going boarding school. That was just me. It's a real balancing act, balancing career and family. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. You just see some people just, they put their nose to the wheel and um, all day and don't see the families much at all. And, and I tried to have weekends with, with them as well. Um, the only time I was working weekends was when the ministers had to meet the community and the, in their local area. You'd have to go away on a Sunday or generally a Sunday or you had to work a bit on Saturday. But basically I tried to be home weekends and we'd go to church together and things like that. So yeah, I, I saw it as important. And, and we still do try to get everyone around for when they're in for lunch. You know, fortunately, uh, our grandkids are in town and... And our t- two, two of our siblings are, one's in Brisbane, he comes up when he can. And we have dinners and lunches at our place to bring, bring the family together. How have grandkids changed you? Oh, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a real balance. Uh, I, I remember the saying my father had, uh, when you get, well, at the end of the day, you just hand them back. You haven't got to, got to keep them. And, um, and I, I appreciate his comment on that. We, we have them sleeping over and uh, things like that. Oh, they're real challenging because today's different too, you know. And, and you see such a diversity in the kids too. The, you know, we'll have ones who, who just want to be outside all the time. And uh, they'll come inside for a bit and they'll get restless really quick. Others will potter around and do play by themselves. But then you've got some who just don't want to. And, they, and some of them are real active. And the ones who aren't real active, well, I think it's only... They, they all like getting out and we get them out and climbing trees and uh, sliding on water slides and all, all those sorts of things, jumping on trampolines. You talk about the fact that they are different. It's a different world for them to grow up these days. Does that worry you with this whole COVID epidemic and things like that? Uh, no, not really. I think um, it is different and I think you've got to have your hygiene, those sorts of things. So another things were drummed into me as a kid too and my wife. You know, wash your hands before you eat, do this sort of things. Don't don't touch that. Do this. So, so I think it's it's a world you live in, and uh, you had uh, influenza. Yeah, there's a whole pile of things. You know, it's, it's measles, mumps, and all that. So, so I, I think it's a one of those things. You you make sure your hygiene's right, and uh, technology. Yeah, you just got to make sure there's a balance. You just don't let them sit on iPads or tablets all day. Get them out playing, and that that's pretty important. Swimming. We got a pool, so. They love swimming, so so they'll swim there half a day. Make sure they don't get sunburned. <laughs> well, that's also the fact that uh, living out in the country, it, it must be a, a, an advantage for kids growing up, though, compared to their city counterparts. Yeah, you can get involved with... I know when my kids were young, you could get involved with uh, a lot of sports and you didn't have to travel too far. Whereas I remember in Brisbane, you had to travel half an hour to particularly if there were sports on one side or the other. So we didn't do that. I got involved with Scouts, which was local. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, my, uh, my kids grew up in that way. And even now, the kids, uh, the grandkids, they get involved with things. And you don't have to travel uh, a long way unless you represent the, the uh, wide bay area or something like that. <coughs> and uh, then you've got to travel a fair bit. But, but other than that, you can do give, uh, uh, be involved with most of the sports Locally, you can get involved with all the different different codes of football, soccer, you know, karate's, all those sorts of things. Um, when you look back after 49 years designing and building roads and construction, what is the best memory that you take away from it? Oh, the camaraderie. Um, made a lot of good friends. And um, we saw the state because it was like a family. Main roads was like a family. And, uh, Has it changed? Oh, it's starting to change more. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't because more and more people. It, there was a there was a great stability of people <coughs> in Main Rose at those days, and uh, <coughs> like anything, it's like a 
you become family, whereas when you've got people, uh, particularly hierarchy, moving in and out, they don't know you, you're just another number. But yeah, it was a great camaraderie, and we, we enjoyed travelling around, meeting people. I believe when you did leave, three people took over what you were doing. You were talking about you were replaced by three <laughs> people when you left. How does that make you feel? Oh, I did a good job, <laughs> and I needed three people to replace me. It's interesting over the time. I've, I've had um, PAs, personal assistants, who one person could manage, and then uh, when she moves, she moved on, they needed two. So over the time, yeah, there's people who aren't quite as efficient and effective. Yeah. Dennis Tennant, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks for the chat, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. GMED is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the diagnosis right with Gympie Central Medical Centre. Contact them in Gympie on 54811873 or you can find them at 35 Excelsior Road. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose-fitting filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. They'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. Aha, not so squeezy. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. But that's only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Plus, the good news is Luscious Licks is completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free because it's healthy and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by bepositive.com.au in Yandina. Bepositive.com.au is your one-stop shop for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Bepositive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at bepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Bepositive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation, hive setups, and Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.